You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. So today we're going to continue on in the series uh, of, of the Gospel of Luke and being Palm Sunday. We're going to look at that story. Uh, many of the Gospels have a little bit of information, a different angle, but we're going to be looking at Luke's version of that day. And so it's a lengthy passage, so we're only going to just talk about just a few today. We're going to read just a select passage, but I'll be preaching on a much broader context. So would everybody stand for the reading of the Word today? And we're going to go to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 39. Come on, let's all read this together. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and on glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Holy Spirit, I pray that as the word is taught today, that it helps us, not just with facts, but Lord, it helps us to be transformed, to be encouraged, to have our faith move forward, to change and influence the motives of our heart where they need to come in alignment with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you and be seated. So on this day, obviously, we're going to be looking at the story of where Jesus was entering Jerusalem. And uh, we typically call this Palm Sunday. But one thing I'm going to do a little bit more than what I normally do is this, is I'm going to be providing a little more context and, and a little more insight on the background. The reason is, is what I have on the screen. I say this uh, fairly often, always wanting to make sure. I think it's a principle as we read the Word because we see the Word being modified by certain fellowships, churches, and this is, this is what's happening. They're avoiding this, and it's this. Text without context leads to pretext. If you take a sentence or a paragraph out of the context of which it was said, you can get it to say anything you want. And that's what we see happening. That's why there's so, much, uh, so many fellowships who are shifting their doctrines is because they no longer talk about the context. And so it allows them to do whatever they want to do. And so the other part of this that I want to give today 
in setting up uh, the preaching is this. Context not only includes the culture, we talk about the history, what it is, but we also need to understand the momentum and the timeline. And we're going to see this today in the message we read from Luke chapter 19 today. How many know that means there's 18 chapters prior? So there's a momentum there, there's a story there that, content, that, that leads up to this particular moment in Luke 19. So you can relax, I'm not preaching 18 chapters today. But we're going to be backing it up a little bit because what happens is familiarity with stories has a way of twisting things in our mind. And because it's familiar, we miss things. We, we don't mean to. And sometimes even by the way the, the marketplace picks up things, it has a way of marketing things. And, w- and it sounds good, we just, we just never think anything about it. And then when we get into the context, you start going, oh, there's a little bit here, and there's a little bit there. And then when you start seeing the momentum, it starts to reveal a little bit more. So I'm going to just kind of rehearse for you the momentum of Jesus' life the week prior leading up to what this this whole celebration today and next week is all about. So follow along with me. So it's on Friday. We're going to back it up now in the Gospel of Luke. On Friday, Jesus is entering Jericho. And as he's entering, he encounters this blind beggar, and Jesus heals him. Because remember it says that the people were celebrating all the miracles they had seen. Okay? So this is one of those miracles. So leading, by the way, here's, here's what you need to know. It is one week from this time period, seven days later, that Jesus will be executed and buried. So I kind of want you, and while the other people around him aren't quite aware of this time frame, Jesus is aware. He keeps saying the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world and then in three days be resurrected from the dead. So Jesus is totally aware. So I just want you to kind of process for a minute. What kind of mindset would you be having if you knew you were going to die in seven days? I can assure you none of us would be doing what Jesus was doing. He was still making other people the priority. It's amazing. So here's a... See, some of us would have looked at a blind beggar going, you're blind, you ain't got no problems, I'm going to be dead in a week. That's what the conversation would have been for most of us. So then we move on, you get into Luke 19. He now is entering in Jericho. So the first miracle happens as he's entering, now he is in Jericho. And now he encounters a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he is so short that he can't see Jesus for the crowds. And I'm not ad-libbing. That's what the Bible says. So he goes down the road a little bit, finds a tree, climbs up so that he can see who Jesus is. As Jesus is passing by, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Jesus sees him and he says, I want to come to your home today and stay with you today. Jesus does that. And while at the house, there's criticism about Jesus being in a tax collector's house. And then Zacchaeus, somewhere in that event of Jesus being in his house, makes this profound statement. He says, I'm going to pay back three and four times what I've taken from people. Because everybody knew he was a cheat. And there's some, something happened. Some conviction set in. And he says, I'm going to pay back three and four times what I took. And Jesus says this to him. Today salvation has come to your house. It's a great illustration of repentance. Repentance is not just saying the right words. I'm sorry. Repentance also includes where I need to make restitution, I go do that. 
Let me just put this in context. How many of you would, if, if, if somebody owed you $10,000 and they weren't paying it back, and then they came and told you, said, hey, I got some great news for you, and you would say, you got my money? No, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We, most of us would go, hallelujah, and on the inside going, now there's an even greater chance I'm going to get paid back. <laughs> Why? Because produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Okay? And so that's what's happening. Zacchaeus, he, he, he not only starts to become a follower of Jesus, he said, I'll pay back three and four times what I took. And nobody said that was the formula. Zacchaeus knew he needed to make things right. That's a great story of how the Holy Spirit needs to be working in our life. That it's, that it's not people always doing the conviction. It's the Holy Spirit doing the conviction. Then we move on to this. While Jesus is staying at Zacchaeus' home, he goes right in, and I spoke a couple of weeks ago on this, the parable of the ten minas. And it's talking, and it's, it's, it's no coincidence. So here he's talking about a guy who's been ripping people off, and now he's paying back three to four times what he took from people, and now Jesus gives this parable of how what we do follows us into, into heaven. It's not only the fact as your name in the book of life, as followers of Christ, it also says that we will be judged according to the deeds done in the body. The, the followers of Jesus get two judgments. See, there's the, is your name in the book of life or not? Okay, And then if it is, it's like, now what have you done with your salvation? That's why John the Baptist produced fruit and keeping with repentance. And that's what this is all about. It's saying Jesus is in a, that God is an investor and he expects us to make a difference where we are. Then the story, now it's Saturday. All that happens on a Friday. Now it is Saturday. Jesus journeys to, from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is about, a, we were there in Israel a couple years ago and uh, this is an uphill journey about 15 miles. It's not an easy walk. It can take anywhere from six to eight hours depending upon the physical capabilities of the person uh, doing the hiking. So it's a slow ascent the entire way. And he stops at Bethphage and Bethany. We read that in Luke 18. We read it this morning. Okay? There is uh, an interesting place called Bethany. While it doesn't say this in Luke, we read it in the other Gospels. This is a regular place for Jesus to stay when he gets in the vicinity. He liked to stay with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He had a great history with them, not only changing their life. You know, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. How many know that's a guy that will probably let you stay in his house? Like, hey, I, even would, I would not even be here if it wasn't for you, you know. So, so it's a regular place that Jesus would go. So this is on a Saturday. Then on Sunday, Jesus gets invited to a dinner to honor him, and it's called, his name is Simon the leper. We read about his healing earlier in the, in the scripture. Simon had been healed. This is a great story because obviously Simon is no longer uh, on the streets begging. Okay? He now has a home, so he's really turned into a productive individual. And he wants to bring Jesus over to the house okay, to have a meal and honor him. It's while he's having this meal at Simon's house that the woman comes with this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus' feet. And, and the disciples go, oh, what a shame. Because if we would have sold that, do you know how many poor people that would have helped? Okay, this is where all this is happening. Then, on Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt, and the people begin to declare that he is the Messiah. So here's the correction. It wasn't Palm Sunday. 
It was Palm Monday. You say, well, oh, really? Yeah, well, then why are we having, why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? Because we can't get you on Monday. <laughs> okay? There's nothing wrong with it. I just kind of want to lay the timeline out, what's happening and how it is all framed. And even with the most good intentions, we can sometimes just miss a piece. This doesn't change anything theologically. It's not like, oh my goodness, we've got to rewrite our beliefs. No, it's just one of those little things that, like I said, over time just keeps creeping in. And if you're not careful, it just keeps, and then eventually it does go somewhere. So actually, this event that we're talking about and celebrating today actually happened on a Monday. Now, this is profound because in four days, Jesus is going to be tried, executed, and buried. Man, talk about a slide in four days. I mean, everybody's cheering them on. And basically, what we have is, is they're announcing this, this, the reason this is recorded in Scripture is that this is the masses now going, we get who you are. You're the Messiah. I mean, you know, over the years we thought you were a great miracle worker. Some of us thought you were a prophet. And, and even Jesus had approached his disciples and say, hey, this is in Matthew, he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say you're, you know, you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. And then he said, but who do you guys say that I am? And they said, you're the son of God. So the disciples had this revelation a little bit earlier than the masses, but now the masses have said, hey, this is not just a prophet. This is not just a miracle worker. This is the Messiah. And so they're out in the streets, and they are, and I'm going to get into this as we get in the message, man, they are letting it out, and they are celebrating. Let me give you an example of this. You read the story real quick, it says that they were laying their cloaks on the road and letting Jesus ride on their cloaks. And you're like, so most of the, oh, that was just a way for them to honor. No. That was a way they were acknowledging, this was, this was a customary uh, cultural thing, that by doing that, they were accepting that Jesus had authority, and by putting their cloaks on the road and letting him ride on it, they were acknowledging, we accept your authority and we are willing to live under your authority. This is why the religious leaders and the Romans were nervous. Because it was saying that these people had now separated Jesus as, as not a, just a religious leader, but as the one. And they were recognizing the people were getting behind him. And, and we read in the story that they were afraid because people now were on their way for the Passover. And they said, we got to get through Passover, and we need to find a way to kill Jesus after Passover, because with these masses being present, this is not going to go good for us. So we're going to try, but then a guy named Judas offered his services, and it was too good for them to pass up. And so they decided to run their chances, and we, we know, and if you'll come back for part two, I'll tell you how it turned out. <laughs> All right? But it's an interesting, like I said, to get that storyline. To get, like I said, to put us in that frame of mind that even with everything unfolding, Jesus is still changing lives. Jesus, and I, hey, I'll even tell you this. Uh, uh, this is a bonus I'll give you in the second. I didn't give it to him in the first. I gave him a different bonus, okay? It was a day or two later that Jesus goes to the temple and he's upset because 
of the businesses set up in the Gentile court, and Jesus starts flipping tables. It was just, most people just think that was another event so far removed, and it's no, no, literally leading into this. This is when Jesus goes to the temple to teach, and he sees the prayer area for the Gentiles completely desecrated and violated, and he's angry that the Gentiles are not being treated with respect and that they're not being treated and given a reverential spot like it. And Jesus starts flipping the thing. And it's, this is when Jesus says, this place is to be known as a house of prayer. They had made it a place of business and doing a lot of other stuff. This is when Jesus got angry and said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Which, by the way, that has not changed. We're still supposed to be a house of prayer. And that's why we do some of the things that we do in our service. I'm okay with singing, but it should never take the place of this church praying. Okay. So let's begin to look at a couple things as we look through the story. Let's begin to look at the principles that Jesus was exercising as he was moving into this season of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. What was the momentum? What was Jesus doing? Okay. So number one, everybody read it out loud. Jesus demonstrated how the activity of God was meant for the marketplace. In spite of everything that is on him, his knowledge of what is coming, Jesus refused to let the, the threat of what was coming down the road to his life change the momentum of why he was sent. Like I said, let's just process this a minute. What would you do this week if you knew that you were going to die in seven days? I know that's a horrible question to be asked in church. Well, let's just process that. You knew that in seven days you were going to die. You know what many of you would do? You would go, I ain't going to work tomorrow. <laughs> Shoot, by the time I work all this week and they issue the paycheck, I'm not even going to be around to enjoy it. It's going to go to somebody else, so forget going to work. So I may not even call and tell them I did quit. I mean, we would just suddenly radically shift our schedules, right? We would just be... And doing all sorts of things. Maybe I want to do that one last trip real quick. Maybe I want to go here. Maybe we would, we would, I think most of us would start to make the world more about us. We would even tell people, hey, you know, I'm doing this because, you know, I die in a week. I'm gone in a week. So I'm doing this and I'm doing, we, we would suddenly make the world that we're in all about us. And I find it interesting, Jesus never did that. It says, as he approached a, a Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This says, in the scripture, this guy was screaming at the top of his lungs. That somebody said, Jesus is nearby, and he starts screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I guess he, he, there was something about his volume and mannerisms. People said, be quiet. He must have kind of been going over the top at that moment. And it says that he shouted all the more. And Jesus didn't walk over, as I said earlier, and just say, hey, you're blind? You ain't got no problems. I die in a week. No, you know what Jesus did? He had mercy. He brought the activity of God to that man at that moment. At that, He didn't say, hey, I'm going to be preaching one of my last sermons Sunday. <laughs> Simon the leper's house, love, love to invite you over. If you really need a miracle from God, be there Sunday, 1045. 
Warrington, Virginia. <laughs> I mean, that's how we talk. Jesus just said, right here, right now, this guy needs a miracle. We don't kick that down the road. We don't tell him later. We do it. Here we are. And then he goes on in, and then he encounters, listen, a guy who belongs to the political system that is going to be responsible for Jesus' death and crucifixion. The unjust. He's a tax collector for the Roman government. Now, if you're going to die in seven days and you already know who's going to be responsible, what would you say to Zacchaeus? I can tell you what most of us. Zacchaeus, get down here. Now, I rebuke you for working for the political system that in a week is going to be responsible for my unjust conviction and play to the crowd and even execute me and kill me in seven days. Shame on you. You're paying the, you're paying the salary of those soldiers and those, and, those, and those political officials who will be responsible. Repent. Quit your job and go get a real one. That's what most of us would do, right? Because that would be true. What does Jesus say? I'll, come on down. Let, let's go eat. Jesus is going to eat with one of the guys that's going to, he belongs to the system that's going to do the injustice. And Jesus says, let's go eat. In fact, let's eat at your house. Jesus did not make his crisis the focus. He still maintained that his crisis could be a point of ministry to other people. Man, does that stretch all of our brains. Because when we hurt, how many know? We want other people to know. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus realized that even his crisis could be used to minister to other people. This, one of the things some people here know, so one of the things that I do in our particular fellowship is, is there are some individuals that when they want to pursue ministerial credentials, and I'm, I'm talking from Charlottesville, you know, the region. I'm, I'm the person that sits down and does that preliminary interview to help to see if that's something that's good for them to pursue. And this last week, two weeks ago, I got the interview. And one of the things that I ask is this story of, you know, like, how did you accept Christ? What's your journey to the point of where you are today? And now you want to move into ministerial training and what's that look like? And one of the, one of the, uh, the student is down at UVA and he's a graduate student. And get this, he's attending UVA and he wants to be a missionary. <laughs> Don't tell me Jesus is not working. <laughs> okay? And I, I said, how did you accept Christ? He said, I was raised in an unchurched home. And when I was eight, eight, in eighth grade, I got a cancerous brain tumor. And he said, before they took me in, he said, I have no idea where this statement came from. I have no idea where this comment came from. He said, I looked at my mom and said, if I survive this, will you take me to church? And she said, I will. He said, I survived. She kept her word. He said, today, everybody in my family is saved except my dad now. All my siblings, my mom, me, we're all, we've all accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. I said, man, Bradley, that is an awesome story. He said, yeah, who would have ever thought I was so grateful to get a brain tumor? And I said, buddy, what you just said is powerful. Wow. Thanking God 
for a brain tumor. Because that's the vehicle that God wanted to use to change not just his life, but a whole family. I'm telling you, sometimes keeping that higher dimension thinking that it's not all about me is crucial. Everybody said amen. amen. Number two, read it out loud. Jesus demonstrated the value. Jesus invested in relationships, and this is often missed. When Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and he was in this crisis, you see literally the relationships that Jesus had invested in coming back, and now those relationships are blessing him. In other words, he had been blessing them, and now they're in a position to bless him. He's on his way. This is the last time he's going to be in Jerusalem. In fact, he's not leaving Jerusalem. He will be dead. And we know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was one of his favorite places to stay. And why, why did they want him? Because look what Jesus did for them. It was, no, it, was no, uh, it, it was no mystery as to why they wanted him there. The same thing. Then he gets invited for a meal at a man's house. Simon the leper. Why? Because Jesus invested in this guy when nobody wanted anything to do with him. Because he was a leper. And Jesus said, man, I'll not only be your friend, I'll heal you, but I'll also be your friend. I'm not afraid of you, Simon. I'm not scared. I know other people are. I know they're fearful, but I'm not. And see, Jesus was a friend when Simon didn't have any. And now Jesus shows up. And I think it's a phenomenal story of how Simon obviously is doing fairly well. Because he's gone from living on the street, now he's got a home, and he says, now I invite all my friends over. Wow, isn't that amazing? Now he has friends. Hey, everybody wants a, everybody doesn't mind having a former leper as a friend. But nobody wants a leper as a friend. Right? Everybody's like, oh, what a great testimony. Can I be your friend? But nobody wants to be a part of helping the testimony happen. Why? Because they're messy. They're difficult. They can be discouraging. And so he provides, and then this, the 12 disciples. We read that he sent a couple of disciples to go get the colt. Now, I think this is interesting because it shows that Jesus was also in the spy business. We know that he had preliminarily set this up and set up a code word. The master has need of it. Okay? And so Jesus was suspicious and knew that he, there were some things that he could not let be known. And so he held it back, and so now it comes time to get that colt, and he tells a couple of them, I need, to, I need you to go. Well, what happens when we grab it? And he says, all you have to do is say this. And he's basically saying, we, I have already arranged this, but I have been withholding this from you guys. Why? Well, I mean, his traitor was in the 12, right? Jesus made sure that he was in control of what was happening and where things were headed. But the point was, why did those disciples do it? Why? Because Jesus had been investing in them. I mean, it's, it's a great story. Whatever, it's, it's, when you invest in relationships, you might just be surprised what people will do for you. But here's what happens in Christianity. Too many people sit back waiting to see what somebody else will do for them. And then they become an expert on what other people are not doing. And here's the thing about Christianity. As followers of Christ, we're supposed to take the initiative. If we walk in the room and nobody's being friendly, then we're the introduction of what friendly should be like. 
We don't sit back to see if friendliness walks in the room. We are the people who inject friendliness in the room. You say, well, nobody ever invites me over. Well, then go invite them over to your place. Okay? The point being is this, this these, a reactionary position. No. We are the initiators. We take action. We initiate. And here's the thing. At some point, at some time in your life, you're going to be glad because those people will be in a place when you need help, they're there for you. So it all begins with initiating relationships. Hey, you, like I said, I've heard people so nobody this, nobody this. And I go, well, who, who have you invited? I don't invite people to my house. You're mad because people don't invite you to your ho- their house, and you don't do that. So there's a Bible verse for you. You reap what you sow. Yeah, I thought that was good. Number three, read it out loud. Jesus demonstrated how obedience positioned him for the prophetic. It tells us they brought it to Jesus, the colt, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And the reason Luke is describing this is because there's a prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, in this particular text, it says colt. And some people go, yeah, but in the other verses, some of the other verses, they say donkey. So, like, are these guys contradicting one another? Is there, like, a mix-up? Don't they know they're farm animals? Here, let's look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt. How many there? We got both bases covered. The foil of a a donkey. So Jesus was aware of this, but here's, here's what happened. He had obviously arranged this prior. And what this tells us is this. Walking in obedience positions us for the prophetic to unfold for us. Most people make this error. They think that they can behave however they want and the prophetic will happen for them. No. When you disobey, you sabotage the prophetic for your life. We read this all through Scripture. I've run into people who said, I know my grandson and I know my son or I know my husband, I know my daughter, my granddaughter. I know they're so far away from God, but they got a prophecy on their life and they're going to be used mightily of God. And I'm thinking, well, they better hurry up and get the memo because it ain't looking good right now. And so the tension is they make, they somehow think that in spite of the person's responses, the prophetic is going to happen. No, the prophetic always requires obedience. And the thing about obedience is this, it puts us on a path today that we can see the tomorrows unfold tomorrow, but I can't see the tomorrows because the prophetic sometimes is beyond my line of sight. It's beyond the horizon, and so I have to obey in faith so that as that horizon approaches my life, I find myself, well, what do you know? Right place at the right time. Who could have thought that? But that's what obedience does. It puts you in the right place at the right time with the right people. But how many times have people sabotaged the prophetic that God had for their life and when they cleared the horizon there was nothing and they thought, oh, I thought God's activity was out there. It was. But a decision back here in disobedience cost you. And sometimes you do things that you never know that God had intended for your life. You never saw it. You never were even aware of what's going I'll give you an example of this. Saul was named king of Israel. He had prophecies set about him. 
And then there was the day he committed a level of disobedience that God said, I can no longer give you a pass. And Samuel, the prophet, pronounced the judgment and he said this to King Saul. It is better to obey than sacrifice. It's a great verse that tells us in order for the prophetic that God has for our life, we have to walk in obedience. And walking in obedience is this. I trust God whether I know how it's going to work out or not. It's easy if I can obey today and I see the line goes to right there. I'm like, well, that's, that's a no-brainer. If I do this, I get that. But how about I obey today? Well, what's beyond the horizon? I have no idea. But I'm going to obey because I trust God with what's beyond my horizon. And I'm just going to do what's right today. I have no idea how it's going to play out. I don't know what the benefits will be. But I trust God. Listen to me. Disobedience sabotages the prophetic that God has for your life. And many times, we don't even know what it was. It just gets taken off the horizon. And then when we get there, we're like, wow, there's not much here. You may have sabotaged it with disobedience. Amen? Number four, read it out loud. Jesus demonstrated how obedience positioned him for spiritual warfare. This will produce a lot of amens. Sometimes when you do what's right, you get a lot of flack. I heard that's right, and that was all. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that obedience has some blessing, but I can also tell you this. Being obedience will invite a level and a dimension of darkness. Because darkness doesn't go, well, there goes another one. They're obeying Jesus. I guess we'll just have to go find somebody else. No, it's just the opposite. we got a problem here. we got somebody who wants to follow Jesus, and we cannot let that stand. And so hell deploys darkness. And we see it. So Jesus is at this high moment, okay? He's done miracles, healing a blind man, changed Zacchaeus' life. He's been in Simon the leper's home. The woman has anointed his feet. He's hanging out with Lazarus, you know, has been raised from the dead. And, and uh, Mary and Martha. And he's now, now the people are openly going, we know who you are. You're the Messiah. And on, in, that, in that moment... Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Wow. Darkness is always there wanting to rain on the party, isn't it? And it positioned Jesus to be able to stand up to this. Obedience brought this attack. So, let me just back this up. Sometimes people go, Well, you know, I do what's right because then I, I believe God keeps all that stuff away from me. And I go, Wow. I guess Jesus didn't get the memo on that because he did everything right and still got killed. So much, so much for even being perfect. And that happens in our life. We can sometimes have beliefs that what we do should always give us an outcome. I've run into this as a pastor. Sometimes people get frustrated. They go, I can't believe this is happening to me. I've been in church my whole life. I read my Bible. I tithe. I even give to missions, like somehow missions is like extra credit. <laughs> you know, I, I do all these things and this is happening to me. And, and they don't say it this way, but the implication is like, hey, I'm paying my premiums. You know, and the, you know, I do this and then God keeps that stuff away from me. And I feel like God has reneged because I've done all this stuff and yet this illness, this ailment, this challenge... This, this disruption has happened in my family, and I don't understand. I thought when I did these things, 
God would never let it happen. So why have I been doing this all the time? And I go, well, I think you have a misunderstanding about all that. Those aren't insurance premiums. Those are all expressions of worship. And I give that to him whether I like the way things are going or not. I worship him because he's God. My giving is worship, not insurance premiums. I give to missions because it matters to me what happens to people. I'm not looking for extra credit with God. I come to church because I love people and I love what God's doing in people. I'm not trying to build a point system with God. Okay? I understand that they receive more of God's activity and I receive it when we're together than when we are isolated. So you, you have the wrong mentality about doing things and what you think the outcomes ought to be on that. That's not how this works. Doing what's right sometimes invites us to a different dimension of darkness. And we have to, listen, I know that makes some people nervous. They go, oh no, he's getting into the woo-woo factor. <laughs> you know, oh, just what I was afraid he was going to do. Get into that weird stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, go to Ephesians. It says, principalities, rulers, and authority in heavenly places. Go to Corinthians. Paul talks about strongholds and bondages and in those kinds of things, Jesus said, you know, he came to set the oppressed free, to deliver people. And you know, I'm just, I mean, it's all over the, I'm sorry it makes you uncomfortable. Actually, I'm not sorry that it makes you feel uncomfortable. But anyway, I think you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's understanding that obedience brings darkness saying, we're not going to let this happen. And that resolve, I'm, I'm obeying anyway, even if I don't know how this plays out. I trust God. God doesn't, I don't know about you, but God doesn't tell me everything. Have you ever told God he needs to share a little more information with you? Sure, we all have. But he, just, but he doesn't, why? Because that's what makes it faith. I trust him. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when, even when he explains it and I still don't get it. I trust him. I've got 20 of these today. You're going to just, no, I'm just kidding. i got one more for you. <laughs> Last one. Read it out loud. Jesus demonstrated how the activity of God influences our heart. So there's, I, we didn't read this as a part of the initial passage, but after those Pharisees challenged Jesus, this is two verses later. He's on this high note. People are laying their cloaks in the street saying, we, we now know who you are. You're the Messiah. And we accept your authority over our lives. Man, I, what a... After everything that Jesus has been through, it's been somewhat of a secret, and now it's out. For I think most of us would be going, hey, Jesus, this is a good day. And he goes up on the hill. He looks at Jerusalem and he cries. Why? Because there were a number of people who still did not know let me tell you something about Christianity and being a follower of Christ. He wants to touch your heart to where that it matters to you what happens to people. 
Because here's the thing, you'll do things that you would otherwise never do. Giving goes to another dimension. It goes to another level. And when I say giving, I mean like talents and, yeah, treasure talent and all these various aspects and things. But God wants, listen, he wants to touch your heart to the point that you can't let something pass. You have to do something. Couple, I'll give you, I, I hesitate to share this, but I got to in, in some way to, to show you what I'm talking about. A few weeks ago, we shared some of the video footage from the Ukraine and said we have a network now that's working through the Polish churches and, and you know, how this works. And we just, that morning, hey, if you can give to help out, I think everybody knows the dire circumstance. This has always been a generous church. And, I, and when I say generous, I'm talking giving thousands of dollars, okay? I don't think we've ever had a, a missions offering over 10, but it's always been generous for the type of size congregation. That offering was 16000 Why? Because God wants to touch your heart. And when he touches your heart, you'll always go above and beyond what man thinks you ought to do. It's, it, it, it just says that it matters to me what is happening to those people. And while I may never get my boots there to be able to do something, there are people. And I, but it's just not that dimension. It goes into dimension after dimension. I can tell you, this is where Jesus wants to take you. He wants you to weep over those who have yet to know. And that includes people in your sphere of influence. God doesn't want you griping about them, complaining about them. God says, I want your heart to break because if it wasn't for me, you'd be them today. God, it matters to me what happens to people. It matters what happens to students. It matters what happens to kids. It matters what happens to my neighbors, my friends, my family. It matters to me. I'm telling you, that's where Jesus wants to take you. That you just say, I, I can't stand on the sidelines anymore. Take me. Use me. Here's my time. Here's my talent. Here's my treasure. Here's my network. I don't know how you can use it all. But touch my heart and the creativity will show up. You'll be amazed at what you'll do for God. And everybody said amen. amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet this morning as we wrap up the service today. And can I just ask you to lift your hands? I want you to take about 30 seconds. Would you praise him for the fact that he's touched your life? Hey, I all know we all got more to go in life, but I at least want to thank him for the progress that I have in my life today. I want to thank him enough that I understand. Hey, he touched my life enough I'm here today. Why? Because it's a priority. So come on, let's just lift our voice and give him praise right now. Come on, lift your voice right now. Thank you, Lord.